Esther 5 and 6. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, <clears throat> Excuse me. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with a wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds to the chronicles, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man 
whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, with the king has, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, the form you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast Esther had prepared. Amen. It is a brave thing to come up here and read two chapters of the Bible. Thank you for doing that, Aaron. Um, especially when it's such intense narrative, and I don't know if you guys um, have ever read through the book of Esther just straight through, but the consistent tenor of Esther is a tense one, and it's one that really doesn't get released until chapter 8, you know, chapter 7, chapter 8, and that's something that we're working toward. And, so if I have not met you this morning, my name is Corey. I'm uh, the worship pastor here, and it's good to meet you. It's good to see all of your smiling faces. And I want to invite you now to, if you haven't turned in your Bibles, to Esther 5. That's where we're going to be, Esther 5 and Esther 6. And I want to catch you up in our series, because I recognize that not everybody has been here the entire time, and not everybody has had a chance to hear all of the sermons that have been preached thus far. So... And I just want to, I'm going to do that by summarizing the characters, if you would have me do so. So the first character that we see in Esther is in chapter one is King Asawaris. This guy is a lustful and irresponsible ruler who um, acts on his own whims and seeks his own comforts. It, it's, it's quite amazing what a king can get away with. And then you are introduced to his queen, Queen Vashti, and then immediately she's gone from the scene. Chapter 2 rolls around, and we are then introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is a, a faithful Jew, a Jewish man who has lived in Susa probably for the entirety of his life after the exile, and he is a realistic man, a realistic man who wants to see God's people furthered and see him glorified. But we, um, then we get to see his kid cousin, um, Esther, whom he adopted. She's no longer a kid by the time that we see her, but she is a beautiful, confident, humble woman who wins the favor of the whole kingdom all the way up until she is crowned queen. And then we are introduced to Haman. And Haman is our villain. He is the exact opposite 
I don't know if you have ever noticed this. He's the exact opposite of Esther. He's prideful, envious, seeking out for his own glory and not for his people, uh, for the sake of anybody else, really. He could care less about anyone else. And so that kind of brings us where we were last week, where we see uh, Mordecai has been at the gates and he has enraged Haman. And Haman's like, the, the king has told you to bow down and why don't you bow down? And, and he's, he's just obstinate because he realizes that he doesn't have to, by God's law, um, honor a man who is dishonorable. And yet Haman is enraged and this one man has drive, driven him to um, seek the death of the whole Jewish race. It's, it's quite a tragic thing that a man's pride would get in his way, but he gets the king to decree um, the, the Jews' death on the 12th month, and it's coming. So Mordecai goes to Esther and sees to it that she recognizes that she will be found out also. And, you know, I, I, I feel for Esther in this particular moment because she's in, like, the queen. She's the queen, right? But she can do nothing about this. Right? The, the, the law says that if she goes before King Asuerus uninvited, uh, she's going to be probably beheaded. She'll probably die right there on the spot. In fact, we know this to be true because there's uh, reliefs, there's paintings of Persian kings that we have found with the Persian king sitting on his throne and then an axe, a man with an axe standing next to him. I mean, that's usually how you see these Persian kings. They're serious when they say only seven of you are allowed in my interchanger. And she knows it. Esther knows it. But instead of being afraid, and I'm sure she was fearful, she institutes a fast, a three-day fast for her and Mordecai. And now we're not, we're not really told what happens during this fast. We're not told that she prayed a big prayer like in Nehemiah where you just see prayers listed out over and over and over when he goes to the Lord. No, we just are told that they fast, Mordecai and the Jews and Esther and her women. She does the faithful thing. And so that brings us to our text today. I, I, I want to wrap that all up so that you guys can actually be caught up with us. Our text today is in 5 and 6. And here's our goal for this morning. Is that we all would behold the powerful hand of God. So that we would praise him for his wonderful works in the world and in our lives. Even when we can't see it. That we would praise him regardless of our situations and our circumstances. And we see this in our text in two sections. So I'm going to give you the outline. It's just two points. God grants humble courage is the first point. God grants humble courage. And then we see the other side of it. God opposes proud pursuits. God opposes proud pursuits. And I've I realize this is a lot of text and I'm not going to try and go through every single aspect, but I do want to point out the two characters here, Esther and Haman, are being um, pitted against one another. One who is humble and faithful and wants to seek the good of all the people around her and the other one who is just out for himself. But in the midst of those characters, we see one thing and one thing only, that God's providence prevails so humbly act in his grace. We see that God's providence prevails no matter what happens, and that it calls us to humbly act in his grace. And I'm not going to take for granted that we might not know what providence means, especially for my children. They don't really understand providence yet. 
except for the fact that God, you know, has instituted us as their parents, and that's a providential thing. Um, but I want to give you a definition for providence, and it's, it's quite simple and very dense at the same time. God's exercise of his purposeful sovereignty in time and creation. That's a distillation of two larger definitions that I really love from Herman, Herman Bavink and Joel Beakey, but I just want you to hear this one. God's exercise of his purposeful sovereignty in time and creation. And so as we go through the text, I want you to see his purposeful sovereignty in time and through his people. And before we do that, let us go to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts by your spirit, that we'd soften our lives to his movements, and we might behold the glories of Christ in your providential hand through Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Lord, that you might impress upon us the realities of our own pride and force us to push us into humility like your son. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that brings us to our text. So starting in chapter five, I'm just gonna, if you're wondering what I'm gonna do, I'm not gonna you know, talk about every single point, but I am going to wrap up the whole thing. See, the very first thing, chapter five, verses one to eight, we see Esther acts in faith. Esther acts in faith because God grants her humble courage. See, she wisely prepares for her encounter with the king. She puts on her royal robes and no less for, she's been taught how to be before the king and how to garner his respect. Remember back in chapter two, the Haggai, the eunuch, he kind of trains her and makes sure that she goes before the king and that she would have all the tools that she would need to win his favor. So no doubt she's, dressing for the occasion, right? Royal robes in the royal court, even though she's doing it against the law, she wants to be noticed. And she wants to be noticed, not for the reason back in chapter two, to become queen, but to convey the dignity and respect that she deserves as queen. See, I think this is actually a big point that a lot of people don't really pay attention to. On the third day, she puts on her royal robes, she is prepared for battle. She has sought the Lord in fasting. She has gone before him and he has given her the opportunity and she takes it. And she humbly goes before the king. Again, with expedience, not delaying, not, not sitting on her hands. I, I know she was fearful. Think about it. You know that you're violating the law. You know you're violating the law of the land and that violation is death. The, the consequence of it is death. But she goes and she courageously, she courageously takes the next step that the Lord provides. She faithfully walks in courage and humility. And she did not know, she could not know what was going to happen next. And yet she did exactly what God asked her to do. See, Esther demonstrates faithfulness in a way that many of us never see anymore. She demonstrates faithfulness in the face of terror by taking the next faithful step. 
And Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite authors, one of the uh, guys who just, he takes really big concepts and makes it really easy. And I, I really appreciate that. And in his book, um, Just Do Something on God's Will, you should read that book if you haven't yet. He says, he describes this moment like this. He says, Esther did not wait weeks or months to discern God's will for her life before she acted. No, she simply did what was right and forged ahead without any special word from the God. She knew what was right and she did it. She didn't wait for the Lord to say go. She stepped through the door that he had already provided. Her place as queen, the preparation that she had undergone had prepared her for this moment. And while she didn't know what the outcome was going to be, she did know this, that God's providence prevails. And she humbly acted in his grace. But she humbly acts not just in faith, knowing that God has the outcome in hand, but she acts with grace. And in this grace, she knows, and we know, that this is the underlying wisdom of God, that he gives humility and favor to those who come before him and submit themselves to him. And in that, she wins the favor of God. She wins the favor of the king, my bad. Her plan was to be noticed, and she had her notice. The king invites her forward, and guess what she does? She follows all of the royal protocols. Have you noticed that she, he extends the scepter? And she doesn't just say, well, I'm glad you extended your scepter, so here's a piece of my mind. No, she extends the scepter, she goes and touches it in an act of submission and saying, you are my king. She has violated the laws of man in order to please God, kind of like the apostles did in Acts 4. And she is kept by God because of her next faithful step to do his will. So she wins the favor of the king and then humbly abides by the royal protocols. And this is flattering to a king. No doubt that God, God has already set all these things into motion, but she's been trained to garner his respect, to win his favor over and over and over throughout the book of Esther. And so she uses these skills. She gra gracefully navigates the tumultuous situation, even though she has violated the law. She knows that this could be still, like, there's still a lot of danger here. Even though she didn't have even be executed right then, she was still in danger of losing her life if she did not tread lightly. So unlike Vashti, who brashly refused the king, she, in her grace, takes a faithful step the way that God has her to take and to soften the king's heart. And the king and Haman are invited to this feast that she has already had prepared for him. And I want you to notice something. The king loves to feast. The king loves to feast. He loves to throw himself feast. He loves to throw other people feast. As long as he's feasting, he's good. His belly is his God. But Esther knows this, and she uses it. She prepares a feast ahead of time, even more so probably flattering the king, even more so garnering his favor. Wait, wait, I don't have to, this is the king, I, I, I don't have to make a feast for myself. Notice, go back and see that God, he's the one that has prepared all his feasts so far. Well, no, there's a feast prepared for him. See, Esther is using the grace that she has and taking the next faithful steps in preparation. She's doing it so that he might be, see her as righteous, as graceful, as someone who is worthy 
And yet she, even though he is unworthy, shows him the grace that he deserves. See, they are invited and they go. And the king asked her the question. I want you to, she asked him, he asked her a question, particularly twice. The first time she, he asked it, he asked it in a short order and says, says this, Queen Esther, what is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. And now, if you remember, he has 127 provinces. So he's not going to give her 68.5 provinces. I, 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 this is all hyperbole. What he's saying is he's willing to be generous because of the favor she has shown him, because of the grace that she has had with him, because of the, the thoughtfulness that he, she has gone with her life. He has been willing to be generous. No doubt this is because God has set it into motion. But she was faithful and already had the feast ready for him. And so they hurry. They hurry to her feast. See, I think one of the big things that we miss is that in our preparation, when we take a big step in faith, if we fail to prepare either through fasting, feasting, prayer, Bible reading, if we fail to prepare our hearts, you can almost guarantee that you're not going to know the outcome and that you're going to be walking blind in whatever's coming forward. But if you prepare your hearts through faithful prayer, through constant preparation, no matter what comes your way, you'll know that God already knows the outcome and be willing to walk through the next door. But then the king asks her again, the same, same question, just a little bit more um, generously. And he knew that this feast could not have been the only reason that she risked her life in his court. No, it's, it's not their only reason, but we won't even find that out until chapter 7. But her patience is on display. Her humility, her humble courage is on display as she gracefully asks him to attend another feast. Again, the king cannot refuse. We'll find this out later. And she will win the day. Her resolute goal of saving her people will not be stopped because it is God's goal to save his people. And she spared the king the embarrassment of going on a decree that, going back on a decree that he has already made and risking her life in front of the court. And now she is pulling him even closer to where he cannot say no. See, Esther is an example, a type of Christ in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that we see right here is that she is a faithful mediator. She is a faithful mediator before her people and the king, just like Christ is a faithful mediator between us and the Father. See, the king's belly, his lust, his pride has decreed her death, and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know the, 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 that the Jews would be um, that the Jews would be killed, much less that she was a Jew. Remember, she's kept it. She's heeded Mordecai's advice. He is an irresponsible ruler for not knowing what's going on in his kingdom. But Esther is a compassionate mediator, and she sympath sympathetically advocates for her people through grace and in faith. And we also have this gracious mediator for us who are in Christ a powerful advocate before the throne of God above. That is and should be our comfort as we walk through life. But those who reject the responsible, compassionate, gracious meteor Christ Jesus will perish by his, own, by his wrath. 
He needs no axemen. But you must come to him. See, while we like to think that we could be like Esther and brave like this, we all kind of have finite understanding of what's going on in the world. We have a finite knowledge of what's going to happen in the next five minutes. In fact, we don't know anything is going to happen, what's going to happen in the next five minutes. In fact, we in constantly come up against circumstances we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And we often act blindly, seeking our own comfort and pleasure before we seek the glory of God and others. See, we don't need to act like that, those who are of us are in Christ Jesus, because we have an omniscient, omnipotent, perfect, all-knowing, omnibenevolent, perfectly loving God who has never failed us. He has never left us. He will never leave us. We can trust that he holds the king's heart in his hand and moves it and directs it wherever he wills. See, there's a a thought process out there. There's a a, a people group, a Christian philosophy, if you would have, called open theism. But this is not the God of open theism that we see here in Esther. See, open theism would say that God is using our decisions to create the best possible outcome as it comes. It's not something that he knows is going to happen nor can direct what will happen. In fact, it flies in the face of Proverbs 21.1, right? How can a God who's taking your decisions and my decisions direct the king's heart in his hands and direct it wherever he wills? You can't. That God is impotent. No, our God is meticulous ruler, sovereign over all things, our covenant Lord, the one who already knows the end from the beginning. He has said it and it will happen. That's what we're told in Isaiah 46. Trust that God. Trust that those of, of us who love God, all things work together for good, like Romans 8, 28 tells us, for those who are called according to his purposes. So now we've seen Esther act faithfully and gracefully in humble courage that God only provides. That God sets up all of the situations and he's the one that directs her path. So I want to ask you a question. When you worry about tomorrow's decisions, when you worry about tomorrow's circumstances or even the next five minutes, are you worrying on your own about your own comfort and pleasure? Or are you worrying for some other reason? Here's the thing. You can't worry for some other reason. You're worrying about yourself. So instead of worrying about tomorrow's decisions, act faithfully according to your current situation. Take the next faithful step. That's all you're being asked to do. And don't delay. God has set you in this place, in this job, in this time, for you to faithfully walk out his will. So walk in his wisdom. Know that he knows the end from the beginning. And one of my pet peeves, and I'm going to just be frank here, is that when people come to me and they say, hey, uh, Pastor Corey, I, I have, this, have this big decision to make. And I'm like, okay, let's hear it. We all have business, big decisions to make, not to downplay what yours is. But what, what is it? And, he, and they usually come to me and they say, well, I have to take this job and I just don't want to. I have to do this thing that I just don't really want to do. And I'm like, well, have you prayed about it? Have you sought the, world, the Lord's will? 
Is there any other opportunity? Have you seen a golden fleece on the ground that was wet? What does it take for you to know that this is the only job that you have in front of you and that you are supposed to take the next faithful step? See, God is not a reckless ruler, and we are not to be recklessly using prayer to our own advantage and delay making decisions. Because usually that same person will say, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray about it. I'll pray, I'll pray about it, Pastor. And what they mean is they just want to put off making that hard decision. They just want to put off the pain that it could bring, the comfort that it possibly could take away from them. <clears throat> it, they want to constantly use it as a crutch instead of actually relying on God and faithfully walking in his grace. No, don't do that. God's providence prevails and we are called to humbly act in his grace. And where Esther acts faithfully and graciously in humility, we see the exact opposite in Haman. Haman is one of the, the most concentrated, largest character studies in the Bible on pride. And if you see that, if you, if you just, just pay attention to what he's doing, it's all about him. Every single thing's about him. But even as we come to verse 9, Haman went out that day. He was joyful. And then, guess what? It turned to wrath because of one man who defied him. One man who sat at the king's gate. The one man who uh, is a thorn in his side. Guess what? The man already has a death sentence. He already is going to be killed in the 12th month because he's a Jew and everybody knows it. But yet this man still is a thorn in Haman's side. So Haman acts in rage. He seeks desperately for public acclaim and attention. He constantly is trying to seek others, you know, opinions of him and seeing them as higher than himself. That's why Mordecai is the thorn in his side. But you notice he says on that same day that he just walked away from the feast. He just has come out of this feast. He's been invited to the queen's table and yet he still can't, he's still blinded by his own pride. See, it's so much so that he disregards the graces that he's been given, the gifts that God has actually put in his life. Now, I realize he's a pagan and pagans are going to pagan, but, but sometimes thankfulness is drummed up just in what we already have. And so instead of being thankful and joyful in those things that he has, he enumerates his wealth and power to his friends and family. He says something that they already, by the way, already know. It's because he has so much pride that he has to feel superior to somebody and Mordecai is making him feel inferior because of one man's inferior, making him feeling inferior. He has to pull people around him that he is superior to and tell them about it. And this should just, uh, should really just rack our minds. It should, it should really kind of hit home because we should see that and re be recalling to mind Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But Haman, Haman continues to act blindly in his pride. And blindly, he devalues all that he's been given, including his own sons. Notice his wife is in the room. He called her particularly. Do you not think she knows how many sons he has? Do you not think that she knows what she went through to give him those sons? And how much pride he has in those sons and she has in those sons. And then he says, it's all worthless. 
It's all worthless because of this one man who already has a death warrant on his head. And in that, you see what it doesn't, what the text is not saying, but the reaction kind of shows us is that they are enraged by this very same man, Mordecai. And then it is just even more, you know, leveling heaps and coals upon the head that they would be more enraged by Haman's dismissal of them. And they say, let's just get rid of this guy. Let's make a gallows 75 feet high. That's 50 cubits thereabouts. 75 feet. Do you know how tall the ceiling is? It's about 40. So think about double this height, a gallows. That's just a stake at which we're going to make a public display, a public spectacle of this man who might dare to ruin our comfort, to might dare to dishonor myself. And he foolishly approves of this vain plot. See, Haman is no better than the king. But what's, what's so interesting about this is it's just a replay of chapter one. You see, the king, he gets angry at Vashti for not doing something, calls his advisors, and they give him a bunch of yes men answers. And then you see the same thing happen. Haman, Mordecai bothers Haman. Haman goes and gets his yes men. They say exactly what he wants to hear. And then they use this crazy phrase at the very end, verse 14. The, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. That is the exact phrasing of verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 with the king. The exact phrasing. It pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. But see, through Mordecai's uh, obstinance, his refusal to see the, uh, through his refusal to honor a dishonorable man, we see the depths of Haman's pride. See, he refused to honor the dishonorable, much like Vashti refused King Asuerus, but in this case, it wasn't sin. It was for the glory of the Lord and not honoring the dishonorable. Haman's pride leads him to the edge of destruction. And like Esther, similarity, Haman prepared and plotted to go before the king. Notice the, the queen says at the very end, um, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it and then go joyfully with the king to the feast that was to be the next day. See, it was doomed from the start. It was doomed from the start because why do the nations rage and they plot in vain when go against the Lord's anointed? See, Israel is the son of God. It's this overarching term of the son of God, the anointed one, the one that's chosen, the one that's brought out. And yet the nations rage and plot in vain against him. But surely in Haman's wretched plans, against the Lord anointed, God's providence prevails because Mordecai humbly acted in his grace. And as a result, we see Haman act for his own vain glory. And, and, and in this whole point, we see the actual middle verse of Esther. Verse six, or chapter six, verse one is the exact middle of Esther. It is the whole turning point at which the book turns on. It's the hinge, if you would. See, Asuerus' insomnia is actually what brings the, uh, starts the shift, the tide to turn for the Jews instead of for Haman. 
Notice he says, on that night, very, verse, verse one, on that night, that same night that Haman wanted the gallows made, on that night, the king happens to have insomnia. No, this is not happenstance. It is not chance. It is providence dictated by the king of the universe. That the king, Asuerus, would hear Mordecai's good deeds from five years earlier. From five years earlier, he just happens to hear from the Chronicles in the place where Mordecai's good deed was laid out. And then he cannot help but seek to honor his loyalty. Now, more likely, he wasn't uh, because, like, trying to praise Mordecai particularly, but he was trying to save his own skin because loyalty is really big for a king. If loyalty goes unrewarded, the king usually isn't the king very long. Et tu, Brute? So in this idea of seeing that, uh, that the same night that just happens to read something from the giving of uh, the chronicles to the king, he was more likely embarrassed that his loyalty wasn't rewarded. And so he did not want to wait for that loyalty to go unrewarded any longer. He wants to make it right. And guess what? Turn of events, Haman walks in the court. Haman walks in the court after all this has happened. And his timing wasn't by chance, it was by divine plot. He serves as uh, the purposes of the Lord. And then the king asks him this question, and I, this is really kind of funny. He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Notice he left out Mordecai's name. He doesn't know that Mordecai is the, the, the reason for the Jews being executed. He doesn't even know the Jews are going to be executed. He doesn't know that any of this stuff, but notice he leaves it out. I think it's providence again. His timing wasn't by chance. The omission wasn't by chance. And then Haman just takes the opportunity. Who else could he be talking about? I'm the second in command. Who else would want to delight in? Uh, who else would the king want to delight in? It'd be me. I've done nothing, but it would be me. He says, oh, let me just give you my wish list, King Asawaris. He says, let the royal robe signifying your love for me be brought and put on me. He says, wait, let me ride upon the royal steed so that I can show everybody that the king has given me dominion over them. And then let me have a royal parade with the best man, your best man riding in front of them saying, thus shall it be done. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you hear the pride? Hear the, just like the, the ugliness, the insufficient, there, there's nothing good about this. It is completely about himself. He sees no reason in honoring the king. He sees every reason in honoring himself. And he then gets the tables turned. Not on by King Asawaris, but by God. And then the king says this, hurry. And go do all that you've said and don't lead anything out to Mordecai the Jew, his mortal en enemy. See, Mordecai, not Haman, is honored. And Psalm 33, 10 through 11 tells us this, and, and commit this to memory. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. He is king and will not be thwarted, not by even a prideful man like Haman. 
See, Haman's shame, though, is unknown to everybody else, but it's definitely on him. He definitely knows as he walks him around. I imagine, I imagine, you know, uh, that, that Haman's just being eaten alive every time he has to say, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights. Just shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And I, I, I really hope, and I, the, Alistair Begg points this out, I really hope that Mordecai's just sitting there going, hey, we can't hear you. Can you uh, say that with a little more spirit? I think it's a great point. Should have said it with a little more spirit. For Mordecai has been kept low this whole time, right? He actually was in sackcloth and ashes two chapters ago. And now he's being honored with the king's royal robes. It's a beautiful reversal. And then we see that even his family knows that Mordecai and his people will not be overcome. For not only because they have won the favor of the king, but because they have the favor of God. So what does this teach us? What does this bring us to? We have these two characters, Esther and Haman. It'd be really easy to say, be like Esther. Be humble. But you can't be humble by yourself. You can't be humble without the Lord. You can't be humble without the Spirit residing in you. So while we must cultivate a humble heart in the light of who God is, we can't just do that on our own. We must rely on his spirit. See, like Haman, not one of us is immune to pride, whether it be a pride of superiority or inferiority. See, there's two sides of pride. There's the one that I'm better than everybody else, or woe is me, I'm not better, I'm not as good as that other guy. Do you see the viciousness of the lowly position? See, humble humility is more like self-forgetfulness, not a low opinion of yourself. In fact, C.S. Lewis brings it to us in his book called The Screwtape Letters. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, so I'm just going to lay it out. He says, it's an allegory between a, a head demon and his protege, somebody he's, you know, mentoring. And Screwtape tells Wormwood that for his mission to be successful, he must actually dispatch his patient by giving him a false understanding of humility. Because true humility is actually like the nail in the coffin. It's the nail in the coffin when you forget about yourself and you keep your eyes upon Christ. So he says, tell him this. Tell your patient this. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a lowly one. A certain kind of opinion of his own talents and character. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe that they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. Do you see the insidiousness? This false humility that compares yourself to other people because it garners this self-absorbed nature when you constantly look to others to bring yourself up or constantly look at yourself, uh, look at others to bring yourself down. Both are pride and both will go to destruction. See, in this, we develop an impenetrable disposition to pride without the spirit. And only in the spirit can we thwart this pride within ourselves. But if you're an unbeliever in this room, you have no chance 
See, you must believe the gospel and lean on our God. The God who has created all things. He created them very good. And see, we are man. We have thwarted and usurped his authority. We have sought to undermine the king of glory. In our, and that just happens starting in Adam and Eve. And it continues to this day. But God in his grace... He brought us Christ. He brought us Christ to take away the sins of the world and to mediate on our behalf, to stand in between God the Father and our sin. Because he took it upon himself, we can now be free of this self-absorption. We can be free of this low understanding of ourselves. We can, because guess what? We're in Christ. Christ is our boast. Christ is our everything. There is nothing that we have on this earth that can bring us to Christ. It is Christ himself that has saved us. It is Christ himself that will continue to hold us. So how then must we do away with this false humility and pride? We must dwell on the truly humble, the truly humble one, Christ Jesus our Lord. We read it earlier, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages. And I want to read it to you again. Because the humility that we see in Christ is the humility we must garner for ourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not something he could take advantage of. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Self-forgetfulness, thinking about others, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name on heaven and on earth. So that in the name of Jesus, in every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. See, we must become humble like Christ. We cannot do that without Christ. We cannot do that without his spirit. In fact, we cannot sell, uh, shed any selfish ambition that we might have without someone greater being in front of us, someone else that we have our eyes upon. See, what we see in these two examples of Esther and Mordecai is the great reversal, where Mordecai's sackcloth and ashes were traded for royal robes. Haman's pride was traded for, for, traded for shame. Esther's uncertainty at the beginning for favor. Those are all God's doing. Even more so, Satan's supposed victory over Christ as he was slain on the cross and then buried in the tomb. Our humble Lord who took on flesh and our penalty of sin, he seemed defeated until the third day. Until that day, which the light could not be stopped by the darkness, and the king of glory could not be kept by his, one of his creatures. The king of glory and the bridegroom of life, he rose from the grave so that he might claim his bride. Find yourself in him, for God's providence prevails. Humbly act in his grace. Would you pray with me?